I guess I'm kind of kind of stuck to it. I appreciate the feedback from last week uh, on this uh, series, and some of you may have been looking for it online. We had some technical difficulties with the recording, and it's just not going to be available. And um, so, but we we'll do the best we can. And uh, tonight uh, we're. We're going to do the second of the 12 steps. Now, just to give a review, a little background for anybody that may have missed the first lesson. The, uh, what's called the 12 steps, the 12 steps of recovery, has a history in the 20th century. And it starts with a group called the Oxford Group in 1921. And uh, they, were, they did not want to be a different religion or a different denomination. They just simply wanted to be a first-century Christian fellowship. And that's very similar to the Restoration Movement. And yet, it, 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 they, they are completely independent of the Restoration Movement as far as I know. They developed some principles that guided the way of life that they were trying to live. And then, out of that, you had two people, uh, a man named Bill W. and another fellow named Dr. Bob. And they became the founders of Alcoholics Anonymous. And from those principles taught in the Oxford group in 1935, they developed the first set, uh, the, the 12 steps. And it's essentially the same as what you have today. And they were... They were based on biblical principles that were being taught within that Oxford group. And, uh, and yet, they, they started to, uh, they would keep the, the biblical principles sometimes hidden because they were trying to reach out to people who were struggling with alcoholism who maybe were turned against religion and religious institutions. And they still wanted them to recover, but they didn't want them to feel judged. So there's a, there's a history and a process in this. In 1990 at the Saddleback Church, uh, John Baker uh, brought the two together. He brought the, the biblical principles and the 12 steps together. And that's the movement that we now call Celebrate Recovery. We have uh, our own Celebrate Recovery program that meets here on Monday nights. There are others that meet in uh, Fort Smith and in Greenwood. Uh, but these these 12 steps make up part of that program and then the biblical verses that have been attached to them are standard in every Celebrate Recovery or CR group. Now, here's another interesting point. If you go to 12steps.org, they will have a variety of biblical uh, verses that attach to each 12-step and, and then the variations of the 12 steps as they're used in different groups. For tonight's um, verse they do not feature the one that's attached to it in Philippians. Uh, but I, I, think that, I think that this verse from Philippians 2 fits very well with this one. Here are our guidelines for how we're studying the text, because essentially this is still a, a biblical textual study. We're going to see if we can explain a scripture in everyday language. If we cannot explain God's word in everyday language, if it takes some sort of uh, special jargon or special understanding, then, then, then I don't think God's word is of much use to us. I'm convinced that we can understand it in the everyday language that we speak about everyday things. Yes, it's speaking about things that are greater than the everyday and the common, and yet... 
God meets us in our everyday lives. And that's the whole meaning behind the incarnation in Jesus Christ is that God becomes flesh and he dwells with us. And I do believe that when Jesus is teaching in the parables, he's he's not speaking secret language or secret meaning to people who can understand it. He's telling stories that invite them into the truths of God. The other thing we're going to ask is, why is this scripture being said? In the 12th step, you'll have the uh, step of recovery, and then you'll have the verse. What we need to ask ourselves as we study is, okay, I see that verse, but why is that verse being said? For example, why is Philippians 2.13 being written, or what is, how does it fit in with all of Philippians? Why is it there? What's it there for? And uh, then we're going to find that meaning in the context of the entire book and then ask ourselves what it means for us. And then if we want to, we can say, okay, well, then how does this inform, that, inform this 12-step process? Step two in the recovery programs is this. We came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Now, step one was um, that uh, we admitted that we were powerless over our addictions, compulsive behaviors. Each group may express that differently. In Alcoholics Anonymous, they may say, we admitted that we were powerless over alcohol and our lives had become completely unmanageable. Uh, But again, you, you can fill in the blank there with whatever it is. So you move to step two, we came to believe that there is a, that a power greater than ourselves can restore us to, to sanity, and we attach this verse to it in CR, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose, which is Philippians 2.13. Philippians is called Philippians because it's a letter that Paul writes to the believers who are in the city of Philippi. Philippi, you can still find the, the ruins of it. It's in what's uh, known as Macedonia. Um, Macedonia is, is what's north of Greece. It's named after Philip of Macedon, who is also the father of Alexander the Great. And Philippi is right up here, and it's on a major roadway that you would have had in the first century world. And um, here's what it looks like today, and there are the ruins. You've got a mountain there. There's the amphitheater and... Um, uh, and the, the remains of the city. And, and it's a Roman colony. They've got a lot of Roman influence there. They've imported their Roman culture to Philippi. So um, all that's interesting, but it's just to say, I, I, what I really want you to see here is, for its day and age, this is a, this is a little city. This is a bustling community. They've, they've, uh, they've got their culture that they've imported from Rome, but I they're also probably picking up bits and pieces from around Macedon. These are just people. These are people living their lives. Look at that. They've got a theater. They've got entertainment. They've got stores. They've got houses. Uh, this is their world. This is their life. And here they are living there, living out uh, their lives. And Paul is writing to them, and he seems to have a very good relationship with them, and he cares about them. And in fact, it looks like from reading his letter that to them that many of them have been involved with him in his work for the gospel and um, I think work actually becomes a key word in Philippians that's what I've noticed here recently if you go to the the back of the book and I did tell you the answers were there and they are and if you go to the fourth chapter of Philippians we uh 
we get a little uh, glimpse of real life. Paul says, uh, I urge you. And whenever Paul in one of his letters says, I urge you, or I entreat you, or I exhort you, or however it's going to read in, in, in your translation, that's the point of his letter. That's a formula. Um, it's like when we do letter writing and we say, dear sirs, or, you know, uh, the purpose of my letter is, you know, okay, so, so this, is, this is a formula that they would understand. So it looks like in chapter 4, Paul's getting to one of his main points and he says, I urge Uodia and I urge Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. He has just named names. Imagine it, this letter shows up. They get this letter from Paul, uh, whoever is the leader there or, whether, or the, the, the person who's bringing the message says, we have, we have a message from our friend Paul, the apostle of Christ. Oh, and everybody's gathered together now. Now, we can't just make copies or send it out on social media, so we have to, we have to read it. Somebody has to come up and read it, and it's, it's as if Paul himself were there, and it's, they say, here's... Here's Paul's message, and they're reading along, and you know, just think about it. There's been three chapters so far, and, uh, and of course, they don't have chapters. You know, we put that in later. But anyway, they have chapters. They're going along, and you get towards the end, and he says, Now, I want to urge Euodia, and I want to urge Syntyche. And you have to ask yourself, what's going on? You know, maybe Paul just named the church fight that's been going on for a long time. Or maybe these two women were, were, were leaders in some sense and, and uh, they had different ideas, but he wants them to come together. It, it, he doesn't go into it. He just tells them and he wants them to be of the same mind. Uh, that, that, would, that would have been amazing, though. I, 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 there's, no, there's no idea, really, what it is, like if they're at odds with each other or if he's just encouraging them to come together and reinforcing it. My mother still reminds me of um, her grandmother and her neighbor, her best friend in Johnson, Arkansas. And whenever it was election season, her grandmother was a Republican and her neighbor was a Democrat. And they would fight and squabble. And one would say, it's all the Republicans' fault. No, it's all the Democrats' fault. And they would go back and back and back. And she asked her grandfather one day, you know, well... What are you going to do about that? And he says, nothing. Neither one of them ever go to vote. So, you know, it's a... and whenever a storm came in, uh, her neighbor had the storm cellar, and suddenly politics went out of the way, and they all got in the same storm cellar. So here Paul is naming those two women, and he's saying, you know, get together, agree with one another in the Lord. And yes, I ask you, my loyal companion, help these women, for they've struggled beside me in the work for the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose name are in the book of life. Now notice how many times the word work shows up in that. That uh, his loyal companion, or, or some will say loyal yoke fellow, and uh, that's, a, that's an odd phrase. Um, the, uh, what it means is it, it's, it's like saying a co-worker, you know, the... Uh, and you've got those two oxen pulling the cart. They're, they're partners together. And uh, he says, now, you help these women. Why? why? Why do they matter to you, Paul? Because they've helped me in the work of the gospel. And I want all my other co-workers whose name are in the book of life. He, he, he mentions that, that there's, 
there's some reward involved in this. But work comes up. There's something about, uh, you know, Paul, Paul's not just bringing up work at that point. It's all the way through the book. And if you go back to the first chapter, right there in the greeting, in the thanksgiving, he says, I'm confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Jesus Christ. So this idea of work appears in Philippians uh, as, I think, is a theme. And that word for work, that word that we translate work, um, which you and I use the word work in different ways. Uh, tomorrow, some of us will go to work, and we mean our place of employment. Um, some of you won't because you don't work anymore. And yet you find yourself exerting yourself all the time, running around doing everything, even if you're retired. So you'll say, oh, yes, I do work. But, we know, but you know what we mean. So you can work. Uh, I've got work to do at the house, but it's not my work. You can work out. And in fact, you get paid for work. But strangely enough, in, in our society, you'll pay people so you can work out. You get paid for work, but you have to pay them if you want to work out. And you can work out, but as far as I know, there's no working in. I don't know how that works. But And see, in there, I just use the word works in a different way. How does something work? How does it operate? How does it function? So we use work in a lot of different ways. Here, the word work is similar to um, the way we uh, talk about uh, the functioning of things. How does this PowerPoint work? What, what makes it work? Or if I say something's broken, my phone is not working. It doesn't work. It doesn't do what it's supposed to do or it's malfunctioning in some way. The word, uh, the original Greek word is the same word that we get energy from. Energy and work. But again, we think of energy as power, as something, you know, some sort of force. But it can also mean uh, things functioning and moving and doing stuff. So, so it has a whole bucket full of meanings, just like we do with the word work. And it shows up in Philippians. And I want to give you just a real brief run-through of how it shows up in there. Chapter 1. Here's your big outline. Paul uh, addresses himself to the church in Philippi. He knows them. They know him. He's got a long-standing relationship with them. He gives thanks for them, and in that thanksgiving, he names uh, some important things. Let's take a look. Does work come up in the thanksgiving, which uh, starts in verse 3? I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in, my, in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel. There, you're kind of hinting at work uh, from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So, yes, he's thankful for their work, for the work that God is doing through them. Then in verse 12, he starts talking about this, the real situation, that he cannot be there. And that's why he has to send a letter. Now, something has happened that has probably alarmed them or upset them or worried them. Looks like Paul is in prison. That Paul has uh, uh, ended up in, in, in a bad circumstance. But he tells them not to worry about it. 
He tells them that the work is going to continue. And he also says, if I can't be there, then I want you to keep doing your work even more so. That seems kind of like a strange thing. You'd think, uh, you know, you'd think that he'd be saying, now look, I'm going to show up, and when I do, you better be on your best behavior. He tells them, no, you be on your best behavior when I can't be there. When I can be there, I'm there to help. But when I can't, you, you have to do even more. So he gives them a bit of a challenge then in these verses. And finally, in verse 27, I want to read this. He says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or if I am absent, I may hear of you that you're standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and your salvation that is from God. For it's been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now you hear that I still have. He's saying that all of this may look like um, an unfortunate turn of events. It may look like suffering, but he says, don't worry, God's behind all this. God's got all this, and God's going to turn all this to good. Uh, So he doesn't want them being troubled by the suffering that they're going through. Uh, He doesn't want them troubled by the suffering that he's going through and what they hear about it. But he wants them to trust in God. And he wants them to work together. And in doing so, they won't just be believing in the gospel, but they'll be living out the kind of life that is worthy of the gospel that they've not only heard, but the gospel that they've worked for, the gospel that they see Paul giving his life for. Okay, in chapter 2 then, he starts out in the first four verses talking about their unity. Uh, when he, he, it's, it's, he has all these if statements. Uh, if there's any encouragement in Christ and comfort from love. Well, and they're going to say, well, of course there is. And he says, yeah, I know. I know the answer to that. But he says, if that's true, then he, he wants them to, um, to, to maintain this unity, to work together. Uh, Verse 4 there sums it up. He says, let each of you look not only to your own interest, but to the interest of others. There's the idea of working together. And and he says, don't just do it because I said so, but because there is a benefit in love, and there's benefit in sympathy. There's benefit in having the same mind. And then then he mentions Christ's example. Here's the most famous passage from Philippians. Uh, where he says, have this same mind in you that was in Jesus Christ. And in verse 5, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be held on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And you have in that little um, uh, verse the nutshell of the gospel that he's been talking about. And then he says, you need to have that same uh, mindset, that same example of Christ who would surrender his own interests, empty himself, but do it for our sakes, and then God exalts him. And the implication is is that God will do the same thing with Paul, and God will do the same thing with them, that God will secure their salvation. And he's already mentioned that salvation back in chapter 1 in um, in verse 28, that when they do this, when they live a life worthy of the gospel, they are showing to their opponents 
the clear sign of their salvation. In, in, what he's getting at is you testify to salvation when you demonstrate before people that your life has been changed by God. We use the phrase, uh, if you're going to talk the talk, walk the walk. In other words, show me that you, be- that you believe this. Show me that it's real by the way you live, and it's a changed life. But it's not just f- uh, effort on our part. It's more than that in Philippians. He mentions Timothy. He mentions Epaphroditus. They're also like Jesus. They, they weren't thinking of themselves. They were thinking of the Philippians. And so they're examples of people doing this. Timothy and Epaphroditus are examples of people who are living out, working out their salvation. And so in chapter 3, he says, don't put your faith in the flesh. Don't put your faith in the things that, that you can accomplish, that you can do, the things that we rely on. Uh, he says, press on towards the, the, the real goal um, in, in three, he even uses himself as an example. He says, if I wanted to, he said, I could have a lot of confidence in my own accomplishments. And then he lists off his resume. And we get to learn a little bit about Paul. But Paul says, oh, that's just a bunch of garbage. He says, I could rest my, you know, my faith and my trust in that. But that, that's not what does it. He says, I'll, I'll just throw that all away because I want to know Christ. Uh, And he says, that's the real goal. I want to strive to be like him. I want to have that mind of Christ. And then in chapter 4, he he calls upon Uodia and Syntyche and everybody else to come together and to have one mind. And then you get this wonderful uh, verse in chapter 4 that that we uh, hear a lot about. Um, Verse 8, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellent, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And I always heard that verse at youth rallies when I was young, and that meant don't go to R-rated movies. Well, okay. I'm not going to say that that, you know, I'm not going to call foul on that. But there's so much more to it. If you can imagine what Paul's saying to this group of people, then he's saying, Uodia, if you're at odds with Syntyche, if you're having trouble with her, you look at her and you think about whatever is true about her, whatever is honorable about her, whatever is just. In other words, focus on what's better. And then all of us, even in our own lives, when we beat ourselves up, Or when we focus on what's wrong, when we focus on the things that have gone bad, he says instead, focus on these things. It's a a change in perspective brought about by a different kind of life. And so we get to our verse. We're going to zero in now back in chapter 2. And in chapter 2, he's just mentioned how Christ does not consider equality with God something to be held on to, fought for, prized, defended, but will let go of it for their sakes, for their salvation. So now in verse 12, and, and, note, and then, then he goes through the gospel, and then Christ is uh, exalted, and everyone will glorify and confess that Jesus is the Christ, verse 11. So in verse 12, therefore... Which means, okay, so based on this, based on that fact, that truth about Christ, what we know about him, as you always have obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, uh, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Now, this line can be challenging. I, 
I was actually teaching this class years ago and trying to explain it, that, that we can have confidence in our salvation, which is given to us by the grace of God. And I said, now, what this verse says is it doesn't say that it's all on your shoulders. It's all up to you. You've got to figure it out. And you might make it or you might not. That you've got to work it out like it's a math problem. And you might pass and you might fail. Just when I thought I had the group understanding that, because I didn't... Uh, even when we worry and we say, oh, I don't know if I'm going to be good enough to get into heaven. Do you understand that when we do that, we're placing our confidence in ourselves? And we would say, oh, no, no, I'm never doing that. Well, yes, you are. You don't have a lot of confidence in yourself, and you don't think you're going to make it. But that's not really the point. The point is that Christ emptied himself. And he became a servant, and he humbled himself before God. Now God has exalted him, and then salvation comes from him. So, so even when we think we're being so incredibly humble or doubtful, we're still putting the confidence on ourselves. Just when I thought I had that group understanding that, someone said, well, I'd never want to get so confident that I didn't think that I had to, to do the right thing or not get into heaven. You missed it. I was like, you missed it. You don't do the right thing so that you can get your way into heaven or into God's good graces. You do the right thing because God has given you the opportunity to do it by giving us salvation. He, and see, the salvation, and it's, under, it's, it's, it's important to understand that term. We're going to look at it in a second. That's our deliverance. We've been set free. We've been rescued. It's just like this story of the, the little soccer team that they... Uh, that they rescued out of that cave in Thailand. You know, if, if you've seen the news, you've seen this. Oh, you know, this poor little soccer team, they, 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 uh, these little kids and, and their coach, they, they go into these caves in Thailand. All of a sudden, the uh, sky opens up, it floods quickly, and then what it does is it fills up some of those caverns, and now they're trapped. They can't get out. Everybody, the whole world comes to their attention to try to rescue them. Now, what would you have thought if the second they were rescued, one of those kids says, oh, yeah, i got to go back in that cave and get something I forgot. Boom. We would have been so disappointed. We, we probably, we'll just leave him in there now, you know. I mean, that makes sense to us. But that's the way it is with our salvation. God's given us this salvation, and he says, you don't have to go back into that sin that you're powerless against. You've been rescued from that. Oh, so now I don't have to go into caves anymore. Exactly. Stay out of the caves. Okay. Don't do that anymore. I won't. We get, we get a new opportunity. We have a new opportunity to live out what this salvation means. That's what he's saying when he says, I want you to work out your own salvation. A better translation would be, I want you to take the salvation that's been given to you and let it and put it to work. Demonstrate it. Because he's already mentioned that in chapter 1. And then lest there's any misunderstanding in verse 13, he makes it clear who's doing the work. He says it's God. He's the one who's working in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now the way that sentence works 
is he's saying God is the one. God is the one who uh, is at work in you so that you, and, and this goes back to what we said last week, so that you have the want to and the able to. You have the want to and the can to. Can do. Uh, uh, he, he says that's God at work in you, but you're putting it to work too. You're, you're, uh, you're operating, you're functioning the way you're supposed to. And, he, and these terms are very important in those two verses right there. Salvation, we need to think of. Salvation is not just uh, your uh, fast pass into heaven. I got my ticket stamped, I get to go into heaven. You know, what are you going to do in the meantime? Well, stay out of trouble, but you know, as long as I got the ticket in a safe place, if I get in a little trouble, you know, we'll straighten it up, check it, you know, make sure everything checks with the man upstairs. No, no. Salvation is a current experience. You, in, in, in 1 Corinthians 1.18, Paul doesn't say that we are the saved or the going to be saved. He says we are the ones who are being saved. There's a part of salvation that we looked in the text from Romans last week that we are made right before God. So something that's wrong can be justified, uh, even though it may not be good, but it was justified because it was appropriate. My example is always the one of an officer in the line of duty has to take someone out. They have to take out a criminal. Uh, They've killed that person. That's not a good thing, but it's justified because it was necessary. The other part of salvation, though, is not just justification, but sanctification. This is the one where we're being made holy. Now we're being made more and more into the image of God. And I think we need to look at the verses that speak to that. That God, when he's at work in us, gives us the will to, and that's that same word that's being used over in Romans 7 for step one, where the thing that I will to do, I want to do, is not the thing that I do. It's the same word. Uh, but now God at work in us gives us the will, gives us the, the want to, and gives us the ability to do things that please God. And that salvation is what you and I can experience even now. It's our rescue, our deliverance, our restoration. You know, the process of restoration goes on. Uh, over time, uh, we, we, you know, if any of you have a restoration project, uh, and that's what I don't like about those restoration shows, those shows where they restore things. It makes it look like you can get everything done in an hour. You know? I've known people that have been restoring cars, and it takes years. People have been restoring houses. It takes years because you have to go through it carefully and, and work this. Our own recovery for ourselves in our life may take our entire life. And we might, oh, well, then we failed. Well, what else are you going to do? I mean, that's good. It'd be better that we are recovering than to give up. Um, you must work out then is, is not, it's not in the original language, but we put that because that's the, that's the command word. Paul is giving them that instruction. He's urging them again. He says, you must work out. He doesn't, the word out's not even there. He says, you must work your salvation. You need to cause it. You need to bring it about. You need to put it into action. You need to, you need to take the, the salvation that's been given to you and let it operate in you. And then watch that change your life. Um, 
It's always good to look at a few paraphrases. Uh, we can read scriptures that are very exact. Some of the verses you've seen are from American Standard and English Standard Version. Those are translations that get us very close to the original language. But it's also good to look at something like the message to see what uh, he does with it. And here, this is going to get us into that common sense uh, kind of everyday language. Here, Peterson has Paul saying, What I'm getting at, friends, is that you should simply keep on doing what you've done from the beginning. Now, he's talking about the beginning of their salvation, the gospel. When I was living among you, you lived in responsive obedience. Now that I'm separated from you, keep it up. Uh, But better yet, redouble your efforts. Be energetic. You see how he translated that? Be energetic in your life of salvation. That's, that's, that's a great image. Be energetic in your life of salvation, reverent and sensitive before God. That's how he's translated fear and trembling. He doesn't mean, uh, you know, do it like you're some sort of, uh, like you have no confidence and you're frightened and timid like someone living in a haunted house. You know, oh, God's going to get me if I don't do it. He says, you know, you're going to be respectful. You're going to be obedient. Uh, you're going to be sensitive before God. But you're going to be energetic in living that out. You're going to be active for him. He says that energy is God's energy, an energy deep within you. God himself willing and working at what will give him the most pleasure. Now, you can see how Paul is talking about the things that we do, but he won't allow that to be reduced down to our own effort, that it's still God at work. Here's the Living Bible, another paraphrase. Dearest friends, when I was there with you, you were always so careful to follow my instructions, and now that I'm away, you must be even more careful to do the good things that result from being saved, obeying God with deep reverence, shrinking back from all that might displease him, For God is at work within you, helping you want to obey him, and then helping you do what he wants. I I like Peterson better. I think it's a little more, but this gives you another sense of it. So here's what I think we see uh, if we combine these two steps and apply it to that now. Step one said um, that the power of sin, addiction, and this is my paraphrase of it, was at work in us. That we end up doing the thing we... uh, Uh, don't want to do or that we are powerless against it so whatever that is is working in us and it tends to make us unhappy or we develop bad habits or we don't you know our, our life becomes unmanageable and that expresses itself in all sorts of ways which fits with Romans 7 18 that uh there Paul describes the situation as the thing I don't want to do that's what I end up doing And the things that I want to do, I don't end up doing that. Well, now along comes step two, that instead of now the power of the sin or the addiction or whatever it is, the compulsive behavior at work in us, now the power of God, that salvation, that saving power is at work in us. And when that starts to work in us, it it, it fits with Philippians 2.13 that... uh, Uh, we do what pleases God. And here's the thing. We often think that we have to force ourselves. It's like, well, I really want to do all this stuff. And it makes me happy, but God doesn't like it, so I have to stop. That's a very childish, immature view of it. The truth is, and anybody who's lived, just, just, 
just a little while in this world understands that all that stuff that we think is so good to start with, materialism, alcoholism, overeating, being angry, whatever it is, it really quickly loses its shine and it loses its appeal and it just makes us unhappy. But then what we find is when God works in us and calls us into his life, even though it's hard and even though it's like we're learning to walk all over again or learning new uh, moves and learning how to, uh, you know, it's like a rehabilitation that we're going through. The fact is the more we do what God wants us to do, we actually get happier. And we find ourselves much more pleased with things. And that fits with Philippians. So there's your uh, Bible lesson on Philippians and how it fits into this, and I hope that helps you. Uh, We'll pick up on step three next week. Right now, uh, Blake's going to lead us in this song. Some of you might be here to partake of the Lord's Supper, which is in room 100, which is right back there. So um, let's uh, come on up, Blake, and uh, we'll sing together, and then we'll uh, we'll be dismissed in prayer.